Welcome to Thriving the Future podcast, where we're finding positive solutions to thrive in the tough times ahead. Episode 9, Winter Solstice and Planting the Garden. Okay, so we are on the road to an event, and this is how this podcast basically started. We were having conversations, deep conversations on the way to and from events, and then we started saying, you know, we don't hear about this kind of, we don't hear this spin on this topic through the normal homesteading and prepper podcasts and then that led us to create our own podcast right correct yeah yeah so one of the one of the things that's on my mind a lot we just passed the winter solstice and most people are not to the point where they're getting garden happy yet but that's usually a trigger for me to start thinking about what am I going to grow next year? Absolutely. I, I'm already beating up myself because I haven't bought seeds yet. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the Baker Creek catalog dropped already about a month ago. It seemed like that was earlier than usual. Uh, I think it was, yes. Yeah, and they've already had a lot of uh, warnings in some of the sites and stuff that they expect either supply chain issues or they expect a big, huge... Um, you know, volume this year and to get your seed orders in as soon as possible. So, and that's sort of what we saw last year in 2020 and early 2021 was that all of a sudden everybody became interested in gardening. And at one point, Baker Creek, for example, shut down because they couldn't, they ran out of seed, they couldn't meet the demand, they had to catch up, right? Right. So, and, 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 and yeah, and buying seed this time is kind of a normal thing for me, and I kind of put it off usually, but now sure. we're in this rush where a bunch of people are buying seeds and putting them on the shelf. Yep. We talked a little bit about in the last episode, episode 8, about land race gardening and basically save, saving seed and then have it adapted to your land. So if I buy seed from Missouri, from Baker Creek, then it's adapted to southeast Missouri that climate, that soil, whereas my soil is really, really hard clay. Because, but Baker's Creek seeds come from farther away than just Missouri. I mean, yeah, they, sure. they, they buy from multiple sources. But, right, yeah. right. And, you know, so, I mean, basically, I've bought, I've bought uh, chestnuts before from Pacific Northwest, and they all died because seeds have a memory. They self-selected based on what the climate was and they self-selected to thrive in that climate. So if you put them in a different climate, they're gonna struggle, right? So that's why my chestnuts from the Pacific Northwest died pretty quickly because this isn't the Pacific Northwest. And then you can get, you could, you could get those to grow. It just takes a lot more right. work, energy, and babying a plant to get one that adapts, right? It, sure. It needs extra care because it isn't already have the genetic selection for your climate and area and mm-hmm. environment. Yeah, so one of the things we talked about in in episode eight was the land race gardening. So what's a land race? That's where you save the seed and then you adapt it to your land. And then after two generations or whatever, then it's going to get to the point where it's gonna usually outperform the seed that you would plant next to it. So say you got Baker Creek seed, you planted it next to the seed that you saved, 
then um, you frequently see that it'll take on different characteristics, the stuff that you land race save, right? So right. you're gonna have tomatoes that cross pollen or cross pollinate. They're not going to be true to type, but they'll be more adapted to your land, right? So well, you, um, you, could, you could keep them true to type, but you'd only be able to plant one type of tomato in, this, in the instance of tomato. Yeah, or you'd have to separate them, right? So that they don't go and uh, cross-pollinate too much. The problem is that when you buy a tomato that's even heirloom or whatever, then it's basically an inbreed. You, it's, it's been inbred so that it stays true to type. Um, and if you plant those in your own garden and then save them, then it'll take like a couple of generations. It'll really stretch out into the third generation. So, you know, say you grow a tomato and uh, it starts, one tomato does better than the other tomato, you save the seeds from that tomato. Or if you see stripes, this is how they get those striped, crazy looking varieties of tomatoes and stuff, is by cross-pollinating them and then and then saving the weird ones right so Baker Creek a couple of years ago had these neon stripey looking tomatoes that were little cherry tomatoes and they were uh, on the cover and all this other stuff so they didn't do well here at all for me I mean they were they were a loss they never got to ripe but when you do that then you can start making something that is pleasant for your garden and then if you taste it and you like it, then uh, um, you can start you can start selecting for what you like best, right? Right. So, what so, have you done up to this point with that? I I, I have broken all the rules. Because <laughs> um, not you. Well, yeah, that that is me. But also because um, when you're mostly gardening for other people in the market garden sense. Uh, um, saving seed trying to keep track of times and dates and selection so i've done small experiments where i've saved uh seed from mustard greens and arugula and um lettuce and um tried to get them to go native uh-huh and i've had success with that especially with the mustard greens and arugula yeah they just they, they will you, and you can get several of those growing a season so you can get a staggered seed from that and replant, but sure. I, but I'm, what I'm looking at this point is I want as much of the stuff on my property to be more foraging than planting and growing. Right. So I am selecting for things that reseed themselves. Uh -huh. So I'll save some of the seed, and about half of it I will just let stay there in the garden to see if it comes back next year. And uh -huh. that's been really successful. I had a a uh, in my first experiments with this. I was living in a different house. I had a purple mustard green and a um, frilly one and they crossed and then I had this purpy, purple frilly one that in mild winters like this was still growing out in the yard everywhere. Sure. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I've got a, I've got kale that even though it's got down to 20 degrees, it's still alive. It's kind of wimpy looking but it, it'll probably come back unless we get an even harder freeze. My winter cover crop is still green, so. Right. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I've not saved seed from kale or lettuce. Well, kale's gonna be hard, because I think it's a biannual for yeah, seed. Yeah, it's biannual, so. yeah. And I've never had uh, luck with like carrots and parsnips and stuff, because they always get cross-pollinated by the uh, Queen Anne's lace. 
Oh, yeah. And then they turn into just this hard, fibrous... Um, they go back to wild. Yeah, they're yellow-looking roots, you know, more similar to the Queensland lace than the carrot. Have you tried continuing to propagate that line of seed to see if they start coming back with one that's a more carrot-like or... No, I haven't because I got frustrated when it came back. You know, so yeah. they're biennial. They come back. Right. And uh, I planted some where I saved some parsnip seeds, for example. And uh, and they just came back as Queen Anne's lace looking stuff. With, with all the seed shortness of supply and supply line disruptions, I've been thinking about how much do you actually need to grow to get the seed? Uh-huh. So that maybe you could grow the carrots like the carrots, for example, in a greenhouse, right? Right. So that you get the seed, the seed stays pure, but then you end up getting a line of seed that works in your area. But I don't know if that's going to defeat itself with, it's in the greenhouse, so the climate's different. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, my greenhouse is too hot. But it would be hot. a supply of seed. Yeah, my greenhouse is too hot, and, uh, and carrots, I, I would have to irrigate the heck out of it. So right. and there, there's a lot of moving pieces there for carrot, but there's some other plants that might work better, yeah. you know, like sure. a squash or something that you want uh -huh. to keep isolated or. Yeah. Now, see, that's what I want to experiment with next is what squash will make it past the squash bugs, right? Because squash bugs are, are just horrible to the point where I'm lucky if I get any squash at all. I think last year I got two spaghetti squash and that was it. I, I got more pumpkins because they were part of the milpa, and then they they started later. Right. So they kind of, by the time they got around to the squash bugs nuking them, they were, you know, they were already into the fall. And you get past that that window, and it's not so bad. I know a guy that, uh, pretty local to us, uh, grew butternut, yep. and he did it on a wood mulched. Um, bed uh -huh. and that actually helped a lot more because there was nothing around it was a deep mulch and the uh, squash bugs attacked the plant needed lots of picking and some you know spraying them and with water and stuff you know to just get them out of the area and right he ended up being able to get the butternut to really? come through that without too much trouble but the wood chips helped keep them from having a place to hide you know in like weeds or plants nearby or that and so there was some right. isolation and yeah I've seen that that was that was one thing with the uh, with the pumpkin was their leaves were so wide that and by that time I had a lot of grass starting to come up so they vined over and grew in the grass and then whatever would have chewed on them was uh, was not interested at that point I think the birdhouse gourds that I grew I just figured they weren't going to make it once the bugs hit them, uh -huh. but they lasted through that because they fruit a little bit later after they've come through. They all they did fine. Yeah. So I have a whole bunch of those cord, uh, those birdhouse gourds from you, and uh, I started looking at them and shaking them, and then I I've decided to select the ones that I like the shape better than the other ones. Right. And then um, the ones that have the more seed, the most seeds. Right, like uh, there's okay. a couple of them that have like a hundred plus seeds in them. I believe it. I opened several, and I've got more than enough seeds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and you can sell them on eBay for you know a 
fair amount of money. I mean, it's only like five bucks, but you know, it doesn't really require any work. And one one gourd had over a hundred seats, so you know, you could sell that. You could sell the seed from that for twenty five dollars all all together. So. Yeah, and I thought about selling them, um, set up the drill press and drill the birdhouse holes a yep. bunch. Yeah. Take the seeds out for myself. Sure. Then I've got cover crop and everything else, and then sell them locally or give them away or trade them or something. Yep. To somebody that wants to do the artsy thing or wants to finish the birdhouse, but get the hole in it and get the seeds out. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool too. Yeah, I was thinking of similar. I've got. A, a drill bit that would work with that that's used for doorknobs right you know so I think that might work too I think that's I think that hole is bigger than usual I think you want one to one and a half inch hole really okay yeah but I've got a couple of those and the yeah. drill press makes that real nice because right cool well that's good so the so yeah that's what I'm my, my goal this year is to some of those to my land. I, I have quite a few of uh, um, save seed from last year. Yeah. I saved a lot more tomato than usual and uh, you know a lot of pepper. Now one of the things about saving pepper seeds is if you eat the if you eat it when the pepper is green, right, then you know say you got a green pepper or you have a jalapeno or something like that, most of the time when you save the seeds from those, the seeds are immature you got to get them to the point where they're red. Right, you've got to grow the pepper all the way to maturity so that you have viable seed. Yeah. Right, right, right. So if you're, you know, cutting your peppers up and then saving the seed, I've seen most of the time that doesn't work unless you grow them right out you, to you, red. You could do a lot of that and try and select for a variety that has a seed mature sooner, right? Because anything right. that would come up would be already mature, so it would be line that would have a benefit like that. Yeah, and that's one of the things is if you do a land race, then you can get to the point where you can adapt it to your season. Like a lot of the folks that are up north, they'll adapt corn so that it grows, you know, within their shorter season, right? So like North Dakota, Minnesota, all those, they don't have a regular, um, they don't have a regular long season like Iowa or Kansas or whatever. So, you know, it, as you adapt those and then select, then you'll you can uh, choose the ones that made it to um, the season, especially if you have an early frost, and those are going to get nuked anyway, right? So, so question: Where are you getting your information on land race and how to make your decisions and save your seed and? Yeah, so I got the, I got this book by Joseph Lofthouse called Land Race Gardening. He's a guy from Permies, but it's on it's on Amazon, and I'll put a link into the um, in the show notes. And it's also um, the it was in the episode eight too. There was a link in there. So the and and he's got some good, interesting ideas. Like he actually would taste them and then choose by taste as well. That makes sense. So he got to the point, he likes squash that is high in beta carotene because he likes the taste of it, right? So then he it started... more flavor. Yeah, so he started selecting for, you know, high orange squashes. Yeah. And, uh, and he got to the point where um, 
he got to the point where he doesn't like stuff from the store at all, even the organic stuff, because he got so used to his. And then he has a cantaloupe, which he adapted, and usually cantaloupe, he lives in the high desert of Utah, cantaloupe usually doesn't even make it. Yeah, that's a hard climate. Yeah, so he, uh, he started selecting ones that did make it, and little by little, he got it within his season, and then he started selecting for taste, and he's got like supposedly this just melt in your mouth muskmelon cantaloupe that is supposed to be really, really good. And then he tried another thing where um, somehow he ended up with this fuzzy looking squash on the outside. And so he's messing around with that to see whether the squash bugs will treat that differently. Yeah, because I've grown some varieties that have like little spines on the outside. Yep. But they're not covering it and making it fuzzy like a feature or anything. But right, right. I can see where that can happen. Yeah, and then it, he's, he's trying to see whether it will uh, dissuade the, the squash bugs from chewing on it. So. That's, a, that's a good experiment. I should probably get myself a couple of... Get, get myself one of those varieties that has the spines on it and see if that makes a difference versus yep. the non-spine squash. Just to see if it makes a difference. Yeah. So let's also talk about how this relates to community because that's another thing he covers in his book is that you get into a community where you're seed swapping and uh, and then you are not only... He actually had a part where all of his seed was lost one year, but because he had saved his seed and shared it with his friends and his community, then they had some of his seed and they were able to replenish his his uh, genome, right? Right. So, because he had his seed sitting there and uh, he, he even had it in a plastic tote and the, the mice chewed through the plastic tote. Ouch. Yeah. So, so now he puts it in, um, in uh, glass mason jars. That, that makes sense. I'm going to have to start thinking about how I store my seed, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's what I did. I did this this week. I, I switched my seed from being in envelopes to being in uh, small little tiny mason jars. And so then, you're doing like the jelly-sized jars? Yeah, the jelly-sized, yeah. Okay. And then, uh, and then he, he said, you just got to make sure that you don't take them out to the field that way because he took some glass jars out to the field and accidentally dropped one and ended up with some glass in the field. So apparently he likes to walk around barefoot or something like that. So anyway, so the um, well that can be a pain anyway because you don't get it all and then you're weeding or something and you catch sure. a sliver or you're digging a new hole and it yep. comes up or yeah that's yep. So you got to watch out. And uh, but with community like what we do and one of the things we really like to do every spring is to have a seed swap with our our local group or you know between ourselves. And then you'll you'll sit there and it'll be so funny to hear grown adults go, "Ooh, wow, you've got that," and you know, and then start bargaining for, "I'd really like some of that." Right. Well, I mean, that is that's normal. That's human. That's, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, that's that's a highlight of. Uh, I can imagine plenty of adults who would be like, "Okay, you all are insane because yep. they don't garden at all, right?" I, I was also thinking it also that this particular skill helps you learn that to be observant mm -hmm. 
because you have to be watching the plant, watching for the set, the seed to get there, and then you're looking right. at characteristics and you're tracking multiple details. Correct. Right. So, you know, one of those, like a an accountant or database guy that tracks lots of details, mm -hmm. would be very good at this because right. they're used to tracking details. That, and, and, and but those things apply across. Right. Pollinate one another and make you better at different things because sure. a whole different perspective on those details or tracking details or that that make you up more observant to how this other detail works in another area mm -hmm. would be one example yeah but but don't get so stringent on your record keeping that it's no fun right well i mean, I, I don't keep records most yeah, of the time so yeah. it's, uh, i keep records of what i planted where and that's about it i have a spreadsheet Right. Where, and that's how I keep track of when I planted uh, these two apple trees or something, right? And I guess, then, I guess uh, my, my problem with keeping records is it's easier to do with a lot of things, but it doesn't really work for me on gardening, trees, or plants. Sure. Because at some point the data becomes unusable because uh -huh. there are things that I cannot measure, variables I cannot touch, oh, yeah. track, or figure. Right. I mean, the, the, the amount of stuff that goes into whether a plant succeeds or not succeeds down to, you know, what bugs came through the garden that year that I didn't notice, right? Right. Um, but I've also noticed that I don't have enough information to be making a determination in a lot of selections, right? Sure. I can choose something for something that I like in taste or something and I get somewhere. But we have a lot of selection in our society for things like chickens that give us the Cornish cross, right? Yeah. Which... Franken chicken. Well, it is not the best healthy bird, right? So right. that becomes a, well, what was it that made those selection points, right? actually took this animal off into an unhealthy trajectory. Yeah. And I think you can do that with plants and other things as well. I mean, uh -huh, so uh -huh. I I would like it to be more natural as possible. So I'm, sure. I'm trying to constrain my desire to control every little nuance of everything, right? And well, not yeah. keeping all the data helps me because... I'll go, okay, well, I didn't track that, so I need to add that piece of data, and I need to add this piece, and then, then I'm so far into the data that, one, I'm no longer gardening, but two, I'm over-controlling something that needs to be able to express its own life. Right. Yeah, so I only track it from a macro level. When's my last frost date? When's my last day over 40 or under 40, right? Because right. tomatoes die right at 40, so for me at least. So the um, tomato plants. And... Uh, so I keep track of the last frost date and first frost date, right? And right. then um, and I keep track of where I planted something, and that's it. And uh, and and see, and this is one of the other things is if you're babying the thing a whole lot, unless you spend a lot of money on it and it's like a tree or something, if you baby a plant, then if you save the seed from it, then that seed now knows that it won't thrive unless it's baby. So say you put a whole bunch of uh, fertilizer on this, you know, whatever type of spinach, right? Otherwise it wouldn't grow. Right. So you save seed from that, it's going to require that level of fertilizer intervention, otherwise it won't thrive in the descendant either. So, you know, that's important to, uh, to yeah. check. 
think it, I think it's more of a personal problem where I could probably have an OCD problem with tracking details if I let myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not very knowledgeable about bugs. I just like, okay, I don't like these bugs. I don't, but I don't spray the bugs. So I'm like, well, if the bugs are going to do something to it, then, then, uh, I, then I don't need them there. The only ones that I really mess with are the hornworm tomato bugs. Those, those will, they can do a number on a plant very quickly. Yeah, and I just pull them off and squish them. But, you know, and, and this is another thing is from a permaculture standpoint, what wants to throw, what's your land trying to tell you, right? You know, it's not just the plants, it's what's the land trying to tell you. If you try and, uh, you know, you may want to turn your place into Oak Savanna like uh, Mark Shepard. Well, you know, what's your, what's your land think about that? You'll find out pretty quick, right? Right. So. I don't I, 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 I try not to do a whole lot to control the bugs. Yeah. Because I want the natural systems to take over. Sure. But we also have a very unbalanced ecosystem at this point, right? Yep. So when there's an overabundance of bugs, like squash bugs, I mean, they come through in a plague-like proportions in our area sometimes. Mm -hmm. Dealing with them to keep them knocked back so that you don't, so that you have, not killing them all, right? So that you have time for the natural predators to take over. And squash bugs are a bad example, of course. Uh, but, yeah, I think that all needs to be considered in there, right? Right. Yeah, so that's uh, that's what we're looking at from the winter solstice. Getting excited, even though we're four months away from the first uh, or the well, last we're not frost four date. months away. We've got tomatoes that are going to have to go in pots in like what? Yeah, that's two true. and a half. And yeah, I thought one of the things that really helped me was that there's this uh, this thing um, from that Baker Creek sells, and I think it's called Clive's Garden Planner. And it's like a slide ruley thing. It's like two and a half dollars but basically you know you say what's your last frost date and it tells you when to start plants inside and when to move them outside right and for a for a newbie that's a pretty important thing or if you go in you start planting a new crop that you haven't planted before right right or if you and this is this is another thing that's really important most people only do one season and if you live you know, south of Iowa, you should be able to get two seasons in, if you plan correctly, you should be able to get two seasons in by the fall. You well, know, and then, then there are some things give that, up. That there's some things that you can do that you do in a continual planting, right? Right, right, like right. Like lettuces and things, you can plant sure. them every one to two weeks, depending on what Absolutely. season you're in. So that you get a longer harvest, it's not, it's a continual yeah. Or you do the thing where you seed a few beets every week so that you have a longer harvest period on beets. Right. Because the beets will go into fall very well. Yeah, and so you don't have 20 beets you have to eat at one time. Right? And they're well, going you may, bad in the refrigerator or something. Right, and you may want some to come at a certain time when it's more convenient for canning than... May want some beets early, right? So that you got the beet greens, and then you've got yeah. a big surplus of beets. And then through the summer, you just may want to plant them slowly, so that you've got a slow right. incoming thing on fall, and then a big harvest at the end of fall, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, and that's one of the things to plan for because, like, um, you go to the store, the Home Depot or whatever else, and by July, they don't have any seed left. They're like, oh, well, gardening's done, you know? So the seed is either gone or they took the display down because, as far as they're concerned, the, the season's over, right? You even go to the nursery area over here that we just passed, and, um, you know, they don't really, they don't have anybody coming in in July, August, whatever. Right. And uh, that is when you should be starting your second batch because, you know, last frost date here is October 20th, so you still got enough time to get it. It's hard to get things to germinate in the middle of, of July but or August, but, uh, you know, you have enough time to get another bean crop and then, as you said, to start phasing back in your cooler crops like like uh, broccoli and, and uh, lettuces and, and stuff like cabbage. that. Well, yeah, and then lettuces, you can go past the oh. frost to some extent. Right. Lettuce is one of those that's a great fall garden thing because we're right. never quite sure when it's going to get. And your particular garden area may have a different microclimate than the area as a whole. And sure. That is so much better than store-bought stuff that yep. there's no reason not to. Absolutely, and then you should be able to, um, if you plant if you plant potatoes in March, then you should be able to get another crop in uh, July, August, whatever, right? Yes. So you plant those, and then they'll be done by before the frost is arrives. Right. It's good. Any other uh, any other thoughts or tips? Not at the moment. Okay. I'm sure we could talk another three hours if we wanted to. But yeah, I'm sure we could. Okay. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Thrive in the Future podcast. Check us out at thrivingthefuture.com, Twitter with Thriving the Fute. Check out our Telegram group with the link on our website.